right, guys, welcome back to Freedom Papers. This is Morgan Zeckers, and we're Han Soloing it again. Connor is out sick. Womp, womp. But, you know, I'm kind of digging these little solo podcasts sometimes because we really just rip right through it. Now, you guys, we are moving on to Federalist Paper 26, the idea of restraining the legislative authority in regard to the common defense considered by Hamilton. Dun, dun, dun. It's actually really good. Um, lots of connections to modern day because I don't really agree with Hamilton today. I mean, I do in some ways, but he really, you know, pushes my patience. I, let's let's just say that I don't. I want to. I want to keep this nice. Um, let's start with first sentence. He says it was a thing hardly to be expected that in a popular revolution the minds of men should stop at that happy mean which marks the solitary boundary between power and privilege, and combines the energy of government with the security of private rights. So how special. The United States of America is working to create a government of, by, and for the people. A government run by the average Joes, where people are not oppressed, where people are equal. And that's a very exceptional thing here in America. Uh, so, bravo, right? Kudos. But the problem is, where do you draw the line? And this is going to be a theme. Where do you draw the line with giving up your freedom and liberty in exchange for security that you could get through the government. How do you create a government of, by, and for the people and tell people they'll be safe by giving up their power, especially a population of people that just won a war that they fought to gain independence from an oppressive monarchy? Where the heck should a line like that be drawn that secures a stable and safe country that will last through time? And is strong enough to last. So what they say here, Publius calls it energy of the government versus the people remaining free and not being bossed around by some big oppressive authority. So so finding that balance is really, really key. And the topic especially is important when you're talking about a standing army. Again, you guys, we just fought a revolutionary war and won against an oppressive monarchy. And people are a little nervous to then have some what? some new American version of a big army that will just be around constantly, even during times of peace, and potentially oppress them. If you guys were listening to the last episode, you'll remember that one of the concerns that Publius was addressing was that people are saying, wait, so why during peace times does this army still need to be there? It kind of reminds us of what the Redcoats were doing to us back when we were still the colonies, where we just constantly had this military presence that was there to keep us kind of under control in a bad way. And Publius was saying, no, no, it's just you can't really expect us to pop up an army and have some strong fighting army ready whenever we get invaded. You, you have to have some sort of presence of a military in peacetime because it means that we will then be ready in case anything happens and we will have peace through strength in the sense that people will be less likely to attack us to begin with if we can say, hey, we've got a strong army, don't even try. So there's a lot of good points that he makes. Now, that being said, this paper really rubs me the wrong way in a few ways. We'll get to that. So Publius goes on to say, a failure in this delicate and important point is the great source of the inconveniences we experience. And if we are not cautious to avoid a repetition of the error in our future attempts to rectify and ameliorate our system, we may travel from one chimerical project to another. We may try to change. We may try change after change, but we shall never be likely to make any material change for the better. So we'll keep trying to fix all the problems that we're going to cause by this one issue not being solved, but we're never going to get there unless we get to the right answer soon. Now, 
I get that. You get that first opening is really just about understanding we're at a pickle right now of deciding power versus rights and freedom, power versus liberty, and how do we want to balance those out between the people and the government. Um, the next topic, we're going to talk about what the anti-federalists were saying. So the anti-federalists were not fans of creating some big national army that could potentially be used against the people of America. So, and keep in mind, this is 1700s. So things like the CIA, the FBI, the executive branch did not exist at the time, and it wasn't intended for them to be some fourth branch of government like they are today. So this is really back to the basics. Try not to think of the modern times yet. We'll get to my comparisons and ideas and thoughts on all that soon. Publius's next topic, he says, the idea of restraining the legislative authority and the means of providing for the national defense is one of those refinements which owe our origin, which owe their origin, sorry, to a zeal for liberty more ardent than enlightened. What is he saying there? So he's saying the people that are worried about this, the anti-federalists, they are having this this thought of why we need this because they are more ardent than enlightened on this topic and ardent the definition is basically passionate and so they're letting their passions for their desires over this issue overrule the enlightened view that they really should be having here and and i mean that's kind of like a classy insult i guess you could say he says, we have seen, however, that it has not had thus far an extensive prevalency, that even in this country where it's made its first appearance, Pennsylvania and North Carolina are the only two states by which it has been in any degree patronized, and that all the others have refused to give it the least countenance, wisely judging that confidence must be placed somewhere, that the necessity of doing it is implied in the very act of delegating power, and that it is better to hazard the abuse of that confidence than to embarrass the government and endanger the public safety by impolitic restrictions on the legislative authority. What is it? That's a long, okay, that was very wordy. You guys, what he's saying here is that there's a couple states in the union that have already said no standing armies during peacetime. And what Publius is saying at the end is really smart. He's saying, wisely judging that confidence must be placed somewhere. So the states that have chosen to allow for standing armies to exist, the states and the people there that that want to have a standing army, they understand that you cannot entrust the government with protecting public safety and defending the common good or or protecting the common defense, sorry, I'm getting all confused with my words here, without giving them the power to actually do so. So they need the tools to actually get the job done if you're going to entrust them with a certain job. And so it's wise judging that confidence must be placed somewhere. We have to give up some of our liberties, if you will, in exchange for being a part of the United States. But where we draw that line and what liberties we do give up is really the question. So then he's saying that the necessity of doing it is implied in the very act of delegating power. So you can't ask the government to provide for the general welfare and protect everybody and keep the public safety without giving them the tools to do so. That's really great. And then this is better to hazard the abuse of that confidence than to embarrass the government and endanger the public safety by not giving them the power to do this. So embarrassing the government in this way is basically like tying the hands of the government up behind their backs and saying, oh, but you still have to protect us. They're never going to be able to. The government's never going to be able to do that. Next thing, another concern of the anti-federalists. Publius basically says they are overcorrecting 
to an extreme. They basically have trust problems and they're trying to um, prevent themselves from being hurt. If you put this like in a relationship sense, they have trust problems because they were just cheated on or whatever it may be. And now they're trying to get into a new relationship, but they are overcorrecting and they're bringing their trust problems in a negative way into their new relationship. And it's going to lead to them getting dumped. <laughs> uh, Publius says the opponents of the proposed constitution combat in this respect the general decision of America, and instead of being taught by experience the propriety of correcting any extremes into which we have heretofore run, they appear disposed to conduct us into others still more dangerous and extravagant. And so he's saying we need to be asking ourselves, is the risk of having a standing army worse than what will come if we don't have one, which would mean we're going to get invaded. We're not going to be prepared if we are invaded. And if we are invaded, we're going to have to sprout up an army really quick. And what do you know? That's going to be really hard in many ways. So is that worse, putting us at risk of in invasion domestic or foreign-wise? Or should we try and create a standing army that is limited in a way that will protect us against tyranny and authoritarianism? Um. So he then says, as if the tone of government have been found too high or too rigid, the doctrines they teach are calculated to induce us to depress or to relax it by expedients, which upon other occasions have been condemned or forborne. It may be affirmed without the imputation of invective that if the principles they inculcate on various points could so far obtain as to become the popular creed, they would utterly unfit the people of this country for any species of government, whatever. So if you don't have a standing a standing army to protect your government and your country and the people within it, you don't really have it because it could easily be taken away from you. You need a way to protect your way of life and the government that you've created. Um, and that's so smart to say here. It will utterly unfit the people of this country for any kind of government. It'll bring anarchy. So, but a danger of this kind is never is not to be apprehended. The citizens of America have too much discernment to be argued into anarchy. Oh, so a compliment to the people of America. Are we as smart as we were back then? Probably not. Um, even though we have all the world at our fingertips and all the information of the world at our fingertips, we're pretty dumb. Um, so I don't really know if this sentence matches what he's saying here in modern day, but the citizens of America have too much discernment to be argued into anarchy. So he's saying, all the voters out there that are potentially going to be swayed by the anti-federalists, you're too smart for this. Don't fall for this one. That's a smart, strategic way to say that. And I am much mistaken if experience has not wrought a deep and solemn conviction in the public mind that greater energy of government is essential to the welfare and prosperity of the community. Now, you know, you could go back and forth on that. The greater energy of government is essential to the welfare and prosperity of the community. I agree that you can't have a weak energy government. You can't have a weak government in general and expect it to be strong enough to continue the union, strong enough to continue everything that's going on um, in a healthy way, some way that will last the way our founders wanted the country to last over centuries. Um, but at the same time, I don't want to give the government too much energy. So again, where do we draw the line? So the next thing Publius says is let's talk about a little example. Let's go back to where we originally came from. We're going to talk about Great Britain. Publius says, it may not be amiss in this place concisely to remark the origin and progress of the idea, which aims at the ex exclusion of military establishments in time of peace. 
though in speculative minds it may arise from a contemplation of the nature and tendency of such institutions, fortified by the events that have happened in other ages and countries, yet as a national sentiment, it must be traced to those habits of thinking which we derive from the nation from who the inhabitants of these states have in general sprung. So, Great Britain, people, let's talk about it. Publius says, in England, for a long time after the Norman conquest, the authority of the monarch was almost unlimited. Inroads were, so the, the monarch was in full, complete, full, complete in charge. He says, inroads were gradually made upon the prerogative in favor of liberty. So over time, the power of the monarch was reduced and a more democratic form of government where the people started to have power slowly got implemented over many, many, many years. Inroads were gradually made upon the prerogative in favor of liberty, first by the barons and afterwards by the people, till the greatest part of its most formidable pretensions became extinct. But it was not till the revolution in 1688, which elevated the Prince of Orange to the throne of Great Britain, that English liberty was completely triumphant. As incident to the undefined power of making war an acknowledged prerogative of the crown, Charles II had, by his own authority, kept on foot in time of peace a body of 5,000 regular troops. And this number, James II, increased to 30,000, which were paid out of his civil list. So both of these monarchs had standing armies. It then says, at the revolution... So when the people started to gain power in this, this monarchy, at the revolution, to abolish the exercise of so dangerous an authority, it became an article of the Bill of Rights, then framed that, quote, the raising or keeping of a standing army within the kingdom in time of peace, unless the consent of parliament was against law. So instead of it being a monarch's standing army for him to raise up and keep for his own kind of personal use, it became a part of the Bill of Rights in the country for the people that now the only way to keep or raise a standing army was to do it with the consent of the legislature, the parliament, which they had over there. That's a big step. So that's a lot different. A monarch controlling a standing army with just their individual power versus the body represented or the body in the government that represents the entire population. So, moving on, he says, in that kingdom, when the pulse of liberty was at its highest pitch, so the revolution is happening, the monarchy is going down, the people are on the rise, it says no security against the danger of standing armies was thought requisite beyond a prohibition of their being raised or kept up by the mere authority of the executive magistrate. The patriots who effected that memorable revolution were too temperate, too well informed to think of any restraint on the legislative discretion. They were aware that a certain number of troops for guards and garrisons were indispensable, that no precise bounds could be set to the national exigencies. sorry guys, that a power equal to every possible contingency must exist somewhere in the government, and that when they were referred the exercise of that power to the judgment of the legislature, and that when they referred to the exercise of that power to the judgment of the legislature, they had arrived at the ultimate point of precaution, which was reconcilable with the safety of the community. So when the people rose up and began getting more power under this monarchy, they still looked at it all and said, okay, 
we are not going to, though, now that we're in power, now that we're supposed to be a government of the people where we aren't going to be oppressed, we're not going to remove the standing army. We are instead going to make sure that it's checked by the legislature, which is put in power by the people. So that's that massive change. What Publius wants us to understand is that they did not remove the standing army. They understood the importance of it. And he's saying, you guys, we came from this country. We are descendants from this country. We need to learn the lessons of our, our people, the people that came before us. So the next thing, understanding that there's a big difference between a monarch with this power of a standing army and a legislature with this standing army. Publius says, from the same source, the people of America may be said to have derived a hereditary impression of danger to liberty from standing armies in time of peace. The circumstances of a revolution quickened the public sensibility on every point connected with the security of popular rights, and in some instances raised the warmth of our zeal beyond the degree which consisted with the due temperature of the, of the body politic. The principles which had taught us to be jealous of the power of a hereditary monarch were by an in, injudicious excess extended to the representatives of the people by their popular assemblies. So what he's saying is, when we went through the American Revolution, we became so nervous about the threat to our liberty presented by a standing army that we started to get confused the difference between a standing army controlled by a legislature and a standing army controlled by a monarch. And now we have to understand our flaw there and understand that this is different than what it would have been when we were controlled by um, a monarchy. Okay, so this is where things get interesting. I totally see where Hamilton Publius is coming from with understanding that the threat to our liberties when a monarch is controlling a standing army is way worse than when a legislature is controlling the standing army in a republic. But that being said, here's where I kind of drift away from him in this paper. This is where things also you have to consider back then versus today. Think of how he's talking about what the government was supposed to look like back then with the original intent of the three branches of government. And then start to consider, okay, now we have like a fourth branch of government, which is the bureaucracy of the executive branch. Think the CIA, the FBI, uh, the police state that has been created where school board members uh, can call on the FBI now to harass parents that dare to speak out about their child being taught that they're racist in school or being sexualized in the classroom with sexual curriculum in K through three, third grade now, like we see in Florida. I mean, they're freaking out about Ron DeSantis. Start to think about that and, and let me know if you guys agree with, with how weird this is to read this now versus knowing what eventually happened in the country. So, a little bit later in the paper, he says, let us examine whether there be any comparison in point of efficacy between the provision alluded to and that which is contained in the new constitution for restraining the appropriations of money for military purposes to the period of two years. The former, by aiming at too much, is calculated to affect nothing. The latter, by steering clear of an imprudent extreme, and by being perfectly compatible with a proper provision for the exigencies of the nation, will have a solitary and powerful operation. The legislature of the United States will be obliged by this provision, once at least in every two years, to deliberate upon the propriety of keeping a military force on foot, to come to a new resolution on point, and to declare the, their sense on the matter by a formal vote in the face of their constituents. They are not at liberty to vest in the executive department permanent funds for the support of an army. 
if they were even incautious enough to be willing to repose in it so improper a confidence. So first section that I want to talk about. So what he's saying there is that there is a limitation on the power of the military to be able to oppress the people of America because they have to have their budget process go through a period every two years. And so if you're limited every two years to have your budget reviewed and given to you, then you really can't grow into a dangerous force is what he's trying to say. But what really stuck out to me, because you guys, that makes sense. But what really stuck out to me is at the end, this part about how, come on, guys, it's not like the executive branch is getting permanent funds to control the military, which could totally lead to some uncontrollable force that would oppress the people. This was written in 1787, but now considered 2022. I'll repeat that sentence. They are not at liberty to vest in the executive department permanent funds for the support of an army if they were even incautious enough to be willing to repose in it so improper a confidence. Whoa. So this goes back to one of my biggest themes in reading the Federalist and Anti-Federalist papers is that I see many great sides taken by each party. One of my biggest evaluations that I can continue to notice is that the Federalists, our founders in general, I don't think they ever saw the fourth branch of government coming. And that is the bureaucracy of the executive branch. So if you guys remember in a recent or a previous paper with Paul Gosar, a congressman from Arizona, he was explaining that, yeah, the Constitution gives the legislature, Congress, spending power and control over making laws and giving out the money to help implement those laws. The problem is they pass these huge bills that basically give massive amounts of money to executive branch bureaucratic agencies that have been created over the long period of time since America was founded. And they say, okay, we are now going to sign this bill that gives you in the unelected positions of the American bureaucracy in Washington, D.C., the unlimited spending power with all this money. So that's how you end up with things like Dr. Fauci with all this money to say, hey, we're going to fund this study on some other country where they're going to torture puppies and put fleas or whatever they were into the cage with the puppy head and all this stuff is going on. And you wonder how the heck are American taxpayer dollars going to torture puppies who approved this? Well, you guys, the legislature, we have to vote for those people. And if you have congressional people that actually vote to do something like uh, yeah, let's give millions of dollars to this random lab in some international uh, group over there, money to torture puppies in some scientific experiment. That's not a good thing to have on your voting record. And they don't want to honestly have to deal with that. And so they give that power to groups like Dr. Fauci's groups and say, hey, you guys are the experts. We're going to trust you with this money to do it. So they don't have to make the bad decisions and they don't have to have the bad things tied to them. There's a lot of reasons why that all happens, but the Paul Gosar ep episode is a really, really good explanation of it all. So think about that, that idea of like the puppy torture and you can't connect now the people that we democratically elected into office in our republic to where the funds are now going. Now think about that in terms of, okay, that's the argument Hamilton's making is that the people that we re elect by voting to represent us they are tied to funding the military every two years. 
and we elect them and we can choose to get them out, all this stuff. We have a say in it and they have to do this every two years. So they're going to have an interest in limiting the government and, and doing the people's work. But what happens when you have this new police military like state growing with the FBI and the CIA and who knows what's going on, the rest of the bureaucracies in D.C. that are being weaponized against Americans every single day in modern politics? That's where things are disturbing because now there's no accountability and we can't vote these people out. They are not elected into office. So this is disturbing. Publius says, as the spirit of party in different degrees must be expected to infect all political bodies, there will be, no doubt, persons in the national legislature willing enough to arraign the measures and criminate the views of the majority. The provision for the support of a military force will always be a favorable topic for declamation. As often as the question comes forward, the public attention will be roused and attracted to the subject by the party in opposition. And if the majority should be really disposed to exceed the proper limits, the community will be warned of the danger and will have an opportunity of taking measures to guard against it. But do we, if the power was all handed and the funding was all handed to the executive branch the way Publius says it wouldn't be? <laughs> Independent of parties in the national legislature itself, as often as the period of discussion arrived, the state legislatures, who will always be not only vigilant, but suspicious and jealous guardians of the rights of the citizens against encroachments from the federal government, will constantly have their attention awake to the conduct of the national rulers, and will be ready enough, if anything improper appears, to sound the alarm to the people, and not only to be the voice, but if necessary, the arm of their discontent. I beg to differ. I beg to differ. Because you want to know what happened, you guys? The massive federal government has grown beyond what it was ever intended to be that our founders originally designed it to be. And now most states in America are pretty much fully dependent on the federal government to pay for all of their programs. All of the local governments are dependent on federal funds to pay for their programs. And there is so much dependency financially on the federal government that the states have to comply with all the federal tyranny that's going on. We saw a lot of this with COVID in exchange for continuing to get the funds that they need to even survive. So that's why I hate to be radical. Sorry, I'm going to do it. But that's why I will never raise my family family and plant my seeds for my little homestead in a state that is fully dependent and dangerously even dependent on the federal government. I need my state and my state leaders to be able to be this check that Publius is saying that they would provide if federal tyranny ever steps foot on our doorstep, on our homesteads. Come on. If somebody's knocking on my fence and saying that they want to start encroaching on me and my family, I need my state and local governments and the leaders there that I elected to protect me and my family and my community. But that can't happen right now because the federal government's got their hands in everything. And it's the opposite of what Publius said would be. Huh. So last thing and then we'll, we'll end. Um, Publius says, Schemes to subvert the liberties of a great community require time to mature them for execution. So what he's saying is to really, you know, pull off tyranny or pull off the oppression of people, it takes time. It takes creativity. It takes the implementation of slow plans. He says an army so large as seriously to menace those liberties. So an army that could actually do some damage could only be formed by progressive augmentations which would suppose not merely a temporary combination between the legislature and executive, but a continued conspiracy for a series of time. Are you kidding me? So this is where I'm like, Hamilton, come on. And I've said that multiple times, but I'm like, Hamilton, you've got to be kidding me. He's saying, you know, 
it could really never happen because to actually hurt the people, the federal government would have to see this coordination long term between the legislature and the executive branch to slowly build their little nastiness that would hurt the people. And he says, is it probable that such a combination would exist at all? I don't know. Look at American politics in 2022. Is it possible? Yes, it is. You were wrong, sir. He says, is it probable that it would be persevered in and transmitted along through all the successive variations in a representative body, which biennial elections would naturally produce in both houses? So then he takes it a step further. Could this even happen if we have elections frequently? I don't know. What ended up what ended up being the case, you guys? Is it presumable that every man the instant he took seat in the National Senate or House of Representatives would commence a traitor to his constituents and to his country? I have an even better answer for you there, Hamilton. It's not even that they get elected and are good and then become corrupt. Guess what? They're corrupt before they even get in office, buddy. It's called modern day American politics. The corruption is deep before Election Day even gets there. How do you think they even select candidates these days? It's who would do our bidding. This is such a shame because it's like, oh, man, we really got this one wrong. He says, can it be supposed that there would not be found one man discerning enough to detect so atrocious a conspiracy or bold or honest enough to apprise his constituents of their danger? <laughs> I just, so he's like, what, there wouldn't at least be someone who could warn the people that bad things are happening in Washington, D.C.? Hello, those people are like eliminated from the conversation, stripped of their committee titles and never allowed to make an actual change. And anybody that tries to listen to them, guess what? They're overpowered because the entire machine is working against them. Obviously, there are going to be some good apples that say, hey, uh, things are kind of derailing here and there are some bad apples and corruption. There's a lot of corruption going on. Yeah, Hamilton, there's going to be a few people that are obviously going to say that. But in general, the system has been so corrupted. And he, the fact that he thinks that the legislative and executive branch would never combine forces, guess what happened? Now you got the judicial branch. The Supreme Court is now weaponized. The entire judicial system in the country is politicized. It's insane. Have you seen the hearings these days? This is such a sad paper. Ugh. It's really a shame. You guys have to go. So you guys have to read this paper because it's really, really good. But definitely read the paragraph at the end that says schemes to subvert the liberties of a great community require time to mature them for execution. Yeah. Have you seen the communist movement that started in the early 1900s and has ruined our country ever since? Long time subversion, baby. All right. Let's wrap it up. <laughs> let's wrap it up with what Puglia sends the paper with. He says, but it is an evil infinitely less likely to attend us in a united than a disunited state. Nay, it may be safely asserted that it is an evil altogether unlikely to attend us in the, in, in the former situation. It is not easy to conceive a possibility that dangers so formidable can assail the whole Union as to demand a force considerable enough to place our liberties in the least jeopardy, especially if we take into our view the aid to be deprived from the militia, which ought always to be counted upon as a valuable and powerful auxiliary. But in a state of disunion, as has been fully shown in another place, the contrary of this supposition would become not only probable, but almost unavoidable. And so, yes, I get it. Without a standing army, we are probably going to be in a worse position than with one. We have to have proper checks on the standing army. We have to protect ourselves from that threat. But you guys, I, I worry because not only do we see the 
politicalization of our military. I mean, I, if you look up NDU, which I think is called the National Defense University, they recently hosted a speaker that at NDU, all of the people there, the students are actually leaders in our international and military communities that are like entrusted with doing America's work on the world stage and on the military stage. Their most recent lecture told them that to fight communist China in the future, we must embrace socialism in America. That's the way that our military leaders were lectured on about how to beat communist China. So you can look up that article. It's insane. And it's a taxpayer-funded university. You see the wokeism being put into the DEI trainings in our military. You see the forced vax of our military members, the firing of anybody that wouldn't get the vax. That is a huge concern. And I'm very worried about that. But I think the underlying message in this paper is less about the army because, yeah, generally it, it's about the military and the standing army. But the greater message here is that we are being oppressed and we are experiencing tyranny from the federal government in a way where a combination between the legislature and the executive branch is hurting the American people. But it's not with the standing army at the moment, at least. It's with the executive branch turning into a fourth branch of bureaucracy that we have of unelected bureaucrats with too much power, too much money, and a lot of um, physical force that they're able to use over the people. And by that, I mean sending FBI agents after school board members. That's just one fantastic example. You guys, thanks for watching Freedom Papers. This is Morgan Zeggers. I hope that was informative. Federalist paper number 26. Stay tuned. And please remember, if you haven't yet, give us five stars on the podcast platform you're listening on and watch us on YouTube. Thanks so much. Thanks so much.